1: Drivers, start
0: your engines! Get the pace car! What's for? Because you need any other damn thing out there, I want you to be perfect.
2: When I'm driving, I got a guy on the radio who
0: talks to me. It's him. He talks to me.
1: Hey, race fans, welcome to the Hoobazoo Radio Network and welcome to the Drafting the Circuits program. My name is Frank Santoroski. I'll be your host for the next hour as we talk about last week in racing and we've got a special guest lined up today. Uh, before I introduce our guest uh, with me on the panel, Louise Torres, Richard Uden. Guys, how are we doing?
3: I'm doing good. Thanks.
1: Going very good. All right, so we've got uh, a returning guest, a great friend of the show. I think this is the, the third, maybe fourth time uh, we've had Mr. Jade Gers on the show. Uh, he, he he is an author uh, as well as uh, does a lot of lot of other things with um, you know sponsorship and marketing in, in the race world. Been in racing his whole life, and uh, Jade, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you, Frank. It's uh, always great to be with you guys. I always enjoy it. All
1: right. So last time we had you on the show, we were talking about the book racer, which is the John Andretti story, uh, Mm -hmm. which was a uh, fantastic book. And at that time you indicated to us, you had something else in the works, but you wouldn't let on what it was. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Of course, of course, now we know that project is uh, what is known as the book, Alice Jr. A Checkered Past, which uh, hit the, um, hit hit the, hit the book stands and, and the websites, uh, couple of weeks ago or, or about a month ago. And, um, so, uh, this is a very popular subject. If you think about it, cause, uh, you see, I'm 54 years old. Mm-hmm. And so there's a whole generation of people that are close to my age and a bit older who grew up right in that era of the, you know, what, what us old timers like to call the golden age of cart, um, yes yeah you know, so and you know you know looking back and and you know dissecting it uh but but God, gosh we loved it back then and, and you know to somebody my age uh, and a little older alastair junior represents everything that was good about kart i mean he was one of the major players through that whole era i mean i the, the kart series started in 1979 i attended my first race that same year I was 12. Al Esther Jr. hit the scene in about 83 or 84. I was 16, 17. So I was right there rooting for this, uh, you know, Al Esther Jr. as well as his on-track rival, Mike Landretti, through that whole era, which was fantastic. Now, that being said, with this great audience you have of folks like me who uh, are older and have enough money to buy books, how have the sales been for this book so far?
2: Uh, it's been very strong, which is very encouraging. Um, we've, uh, really got, uh, got a lot of very positive coverage, uh, a lot of reviews and interviews, and, uh, it's rewarding when you work so hard on something and, uh, to have it well-received is, is great, but, uh, the, uh, publisher has already, uh, we're waiting on the second pressing or printing. So that's always a great sign. So uh, particularly since it's not been out that long to have a second printing already is uh, great. And uh, word of mouth has been wonderful. So uh, it's very rewarding.
1: Absolutely. And again, I'll just throw this out there that it's published by Octane Press, who has been really great with putting out uh, books, not only of yours, but of uh, other several, uh, you know, motor racing, Uh, subjects. But now speaking of the subject matter. Now, the last book you did was John Andretti and Uh he was, he was rather universally liked as a person. Um, You've also done uh, the book beast, which is a very technical book, but uh, you know, for folks into the tech, it it was a great read and a very interesting story. And and there's a lot of great race stuff in there. And you've done, you've done books with um, Daryl Waltrip and uh, Dale Earnhardt jr. And Uh I I think you told me that Dale uh, told you some great stories that he would not allow you to put in the book. So, so both both those books are guys that are generally universally liked, but when we talk about Al Jr. and this particular book, the subject matter is much darker. Um, When we talk about the substance abuse and the, the, the damage he did to his career and his family, did you have to adjust your writing style to, to, to kind of capture uh, Al's story, uh,
2: I, I wouldn't say writing style. It definitely was a, a book with much more serious topics. Um, as an author, my goal is to disappear. Basically, yeah, I want I want the book to sound, if you're reading that book, I want you to feel as if Al Jr. is there on your couch with you telling you these stories. It's in Al's voice. It's Al's stories. Uh, My job is primarily um, as an editor and an organizer to take his stories and his life and create a compelling Uh, narrative from that. So it's, um, it's a little different style, each book, uh, again, just uh, uh, wanting people to, to be able to hear Al's voice telling you these things, and it's exact same thing with my Dale Jr. books, or Daryl Waltrip, or John Andretti. Um, That's really the challenge of an author, in those scenarios, uh, this is Al's voice, it's his story and his book.
1: All right, so now the reaction to the book, I've, I, I read this book again with great interest and, I, and I've spoken to a lot of my racing friends who had very varied reactions to this book. Now, now, one way you can walk away from reading this book is to say, man, what an inspirational story. This guy was in, in the deepest of deep and, and he, he got himself out of it and he's doing well. Uh, you could also you could also walk away from this book and say, "My God, what a jackass!" Uh, you know, because there there are uh, there there are things in there that that will make you cringe, especially when you st- you know start to put a lot of thought of it. The way he uh, you know uh, treated his his kids or ignored his kids, and and the the, the on again, off again with with Shelley, Um so I mean, what has been the general reaction? And I know it's again, it's not a reflection on you, but perhaps a reflection yeah. on him.
2: I think it's been primarily positive. Uh, I think people appreciate his bravery in the sense that, from the very first time he and I spoke about this book, he has he said, "I want to be honest. I want to tell my story because I think people can learn from." my mistakes, the the terrible things that he has gone through in his life. Um, and so it was very important to him from the very first discussion was that, uh, that he be able to be open and honest and share the truth, even when, um, he doesn't look very good. Um, you know, I, I have no problem admitting that some of my books, uh, you know, made these drivers look heroic at times. And while Al was a hero to some behind the wheel, uh, his life has uh, taken a lot of different turns. And so it was very important that this be about the very human person behind, you know, the, the, the facade that won two Indy 500s, two IndyCar championships, IROC titles, all that. Um, And it was very important for him to explain why certain things happened and uh, really try to give the full story while at the same time being committed to not trying to throw others under the bus or to, you know, write a Hmm. quote tell all book that was, uh, you know, definitely trying to blame others or any of that. It was definitely Al sharing his truth and uh the consequences and you're right he has survived and is definitely uh um you know making a strong comeback he's recently married he's really getting his life back together so uh that was what we discussed the very first time we
3: we met to to talk about the book yeah sorry quick quick question uh mm -hmm. frank sorry to interrupt in a way, when you're writing this sort of a book from a slightly different angle from the others you've written, is it almost easier in a way because you're not trying to create this image, this sort of fanciful image, this, this sort of like hero image. You, you, you're you almost sort of being a bit more open and realistic about it.
2: Yeah, very much so. Uh, very much so. And And again, credit to him because it's, it was his intent to do so. So my challenge is taking that element, the human element, and, and again, putting it in a, in a format that's uh, compelling and, and uh, you know, a, an, not entertaining necessarily at all times, but a, a very compelling read. So, uh, yeah. so yeah, it, uh, it definitely yeah. had emotional elements that uh, I had not had, uh, had written previously.
3: Yeah, I guess you're not worried about upsetting him because that's the point of, I guess, a a, a no-holds-barred sort of book.
2: Exactly, exactly. And I I will say that uh, some of his friends or family members were very concerned while we were writing the book. I think they might have imagined the worst of the worst and and were concerned for him. But uh, I think now that the the family and everyone has been able to read it, I think it's... uh, you know, it makes a lot of sense uh, of why he would want to share this story, or why he would want to be so open and honest.
1: Yeah, that's interesting that you say that because I, that was going to be one of my questions here. I, is, is have you had any pushback from the family? Because there there are portions of the book now. Now, to Al's credit, he takes responsibility for for yes. for, for a heck of a lot of his stuff. But there are portions of that book where he really paints. Shelly Unser in a, in a you know, not so good of a light. Uh, you know, he's uh, the 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 point about her. I think he even says something like, uh, you know, I was smoking marijuana, which never hurt anybody, but she was doing cocaine and spending all my money yeah. and buying furniture and trading the furniture and, and, and running through the fort. So she's not painted in a particularly good light. And I was wondering if there was any pushback from the from her family or from the children at all but but no
2: uh if there has been I've not I'm not aware of it but that was definitely the biggest dilemma um is that this is the the mother of his children and and sadly uh, Shelly passed away uh a few years ago and so is not here to defend herself or to to answer so we tried to be we try to be very open or very even keeled about details about Shelley that obviously not all of those are pretty. But uh, Al felt that because the two of them were such a force together, I mean, he describes the fact that once they started dating, they were never apart at all until their sort of stormy divorce uh, in 1999, so, um, so we, we would talk about that quite a lot, um, and it was definitely something that we were very conscious of, um, you know, painting a portrait that, uh, you know, that was very accurate, not always complimentary of Shelley, but, uh, it, uh, you know, it is what happened, and he was very committed to being truthful, so, we really work through that.
1: Yeah, it's, it's very interesting. Again, like I said, he takes responsibility for, for everything. But but in reading the book, you know, as and we all know that uh, you know substance abuse and, and addiction is a very very real disease, and it affects a lot of people. But it, but if you look at Al's life, I mean, all the all the triggers were there: the, the divorce yeah. at a, divorce at a young age, um, death of a sibling. Um, the, uh, the, do you want to live with mom or do you want to live with dad? The yeah. fame, fame at a young age, um, high income at a young age. I mean, all, all the triggers were there. Um, and I, I guess he was just not able to resist. I mean, did he, did, did he mention any of the triggers at all? I mean, they're all mentioned in the book, well, but he never kind it, of yeah. says, it says, this is why.
2: Yeah. It, it's, it sort of lays out in the book like it did in his life. Some of these things at the time, he was not aware of their impact upon him, that it's only later that he realized uh, that his, uh, he lost his sister uh, when he was uh, 19 years old. And at the time, rather than deal with the, the grief and the, uh, uh, the death, he, he basically self-medicated, uh, to, uh, to try to escape it. And it was only later when he started really dealing with the problems in his life that he realized, uh, wow, that, that really was a, a huge trigger early in his life that uh, by avoiding it really became a very deep uh, issue with him. Uh, you mentioned uh, the family, his parents were divorced at a young age, and basically he ping-ponged back and forth between living with his mom and living with his dad and again only later does he realize how that had an impact on him you know him as a, a very young man or young kid not even a teenager yet so um, in the book if you're reading along with it um, those things become prevalent uh, only later in retrospect And and I think that's where the the final section of the book is very powerful in that those pieces finally start to come together for him, uh, as well as the the reader. A lot of questions that uh, you may have as a reader begin to be explained or to uh, develop as he grows more mature and begins to really assess his life.
1: All right, now, Louise, you have a question,
4: I see. Yeah, going back to the whole thing about two of them, how, how tough was it for him to kind of look back at that time period in 1999? Because, of course, not just dealing with the, with the divorce, but also just the final year of his car career the, when Pansky was in the downward spiral, per se, and, of course, his temporary teammate, Gonzalez Rodriguez, was killed in that ordeal
2: yeah
4: was it just kind of for him to talk about his final year in cart and with penske as a whole
2: yeah i tell you that segment of the book um was very hard very hard for both of us actually uh at that time i was with mercedes-benz so i was involved with gonzalo's death and then a few weeks later with greg moore's death so he and i share that sort of um that sort of shared grief for those drivers, but there were times when we would literally have to stop the interview. Al was would get very emotional talking about those things in particular Um, when he began talking about uh, Shelly falling ill late in her life and then passing. um, That really took a lot to get through for him. So, um, So it was, it was very emotional, but I get the sense that it was very cathartic for him to finally tell these stories to finally open up. Um, I don't think he had told these stories to many people at all. And I think in, in, it was a, in a therapeutic way, it was a a chance for him to sort of uh, um, unburden himself with some of those. And so um so it it was it was really very emotional through uh several sections of the book but those in particular uh you know particularly 99 that you mentioned that was a very very rough year for him
4: for sure and the follow-up was that time period of the 1980s i think what some people forget is that he he was kind of a big deal because not off because he was like in uh, he very very young in a time period where sometimes you may have to lie about your age to enter a car like with Jose <laughs> Garza It did, yes, yes. And, uh, How was that at that time period? Because I think if I recall, you had to be twenty one to compete. And on top of that, when he slowly became popular, he was featuring a lot of stuff like his own video game, which was not common at that time period.
2: Yeah, it, it, you're dead on. Uh, it, it's, it's really intriguing because unlike today where drivers, you know, basically get to the top at very young ages, uh, Al and Michael Andretti were really the exceptions. Uh, Jose, you mentioned Jose Le Garza. Um, it's a great story about how he got to drive in the Indy 500. He was too young but he had, quote, a Mexican racing license that said he was 22. <laughs> and so uh, that's how he was able to enter the the Indy 500. But uh, it, it it is fascinating. And to Al, because he grew up in that family, he didn't think anything of it that, you know, that he was so much younger. It was just natural, you know, he grew up in a family that raced for a living and that's what he did. and. So it uh, it's very fascinating to hear him describe sort of his rapid rise, uh, you know, straight to IndyCar with, uh, uh, you know, with great rapidity and great success. So uh, so it, it was fascinating as well uh, uh, that uh, even as he became quote the the old veteran, he was still chronologically a very you know very young man. Uh, he and Michael were really uh you know two of a kind in that era as far as being young and uh, successful
1: yeah it's me and speaking of michael he does he does mention michael quite a bit in the book uh you know here and there they, they, they always had kind of a, a decent relationship uh but they weren't really friends but they would but they yeah. would talk and, and as as children were going on vacation together i always thought the most interesting thing about about Michael and Al is that uh, I used to always say Alastair Junior is the only person that will call Michael Andretti Mikey, and
0: <laughs> and, yes. and,
1: and Michael and, and Michael lets him ga- get away with it. Michael doesn't yeah. you know, doesn't bat an eye. But if you or I were to say Hey Mikey, uh, you'd get the yeah. stink, you'd get the stink eye out of him. But but I did I did find it interesting that the man uh, that Al Junior would most often go to for advice at the racetrack after his dad. Was Mario? Um, he yeah, had a, he had a great respect for Mario and his and Mario's opinion on on you know what he should do career wise or what he should do setup wise or what he should do in the race really held a lot of weight for him and I, I found that to be quite interesting.
2: Yeah, I, I did as well because from the outside you always thought of the the families as rivals whereas you know in reality uh, Al Junior just really worshipped Mario. And it's discussed in the book that at a very young age, Mario connected Michael and Al, uh, for things like contract negotiations. Uh, if Al got a raise in his contract, that meant pretty much Michael was going to get a raise on his next contract. And I think Mario recognized that the two of them could work together to, to help each of them, um, you know, earn a lot more money over their careers. So I found that very fascinating, uh, And uh, yeah, Mario uh, was definitely an idol of Al juniors. And then Michael was his most uh, respected competitor. Uh, Even late in the book, uh, Michael had a very uh, meaningful discussion with Al that really helped Al get on the right track. And I I find that a very touching moment in the book. So yeah, that, yeah,
1: that was one of my favorite moments of the book as well. Yeah
2: yeah yeah really was powerful so although and, and right. the way
1: you know and, and the way you the way you put it it, it was you know he says and, and an old friend came to me and said i don't want to ruin the book for anybody. said this and this yeah and then at the end it says that person was michael andretti Yeah, yes I, I, and I said wow
2: yeah and that's how al told me the story is that you know, I had this friend that came up to me and he said this and you're right. And then at the end of the interview, he said, Oh, my friend was Michael Andretti. And so, uh, I knew that that had to go in the book just as he had, you know, just as he had told the, the story. So, uh, so yeah, very powerful moment.
1: Yeah. Very, it was perfect. It was perfect. Yeah. So, but let's talk about this. You know, I don't want folks to think this whole book is about, uh, Al's addictions because there are great sequences in this book of the racing.
0: Uh, yes.
1: And Al talks quite a bit about, you know, his, his early years in carts and his, you know, struggles with the, the Gallmer and his high hopes for the Gallmer chassis. And then uh, uh, when they pull the plug on that and go to Penske, and I think my favorite story in the book is this Larry Newber story.
0: <laughs> yes.
1: <laughs> I just, yes. I was laughing out loud when I read that and I will, I will spoil this part of the book for you folks listening, but, but essentially you know, ESPN is covering the car races, and they've come up with this new thing where they, they ask a particular driver whether or not they can, hey, do you mind if we kind of break into your radio transmission during, during, only during a caution and uh, just chat with you? You can chat on the air. And, and Al says, yeah, sure, no problem. So yeah, the race begins. Al's got no radio. His radio is not working at all. He cannot communicate with his crew the race goes like 178 laps or or something crazy before there's a caution, right? And he's, you know, doing hand signals to communicate with his crew, and then suddenly when they get under caution on the radio, says, hey, Al, Larry Newber from ESPN. And he goes, what? You can hear me? (laughs) He says, take your radio and give it to my crew now. (laughs) (laughs) And and then, then of course, Larry Newber doesn't. He doesn't. And then the next time Larry Newber comes on, he gets an earful of profanities from little Al. I am like, that's, <laughs> yes. yeah, that story had me laughing. But, you know, but at the same time, <laughs> uh, you know, to, to Larry Newber's point, uh, yeah, they they didn't want to give the appearance that they were helping out a certain team by um, giving them the ASPN radio. But, uh, man, great little story in there, you know. And, and, yeah. and, you know, racing is full of great little stories here and there.
2: Yeah, and again, I, I come at these books as a fan as well. So these are the stories that I love to, to hear. Um, and as a race fan, uh, I have never really heard Al go into to deep description of uh, when he and M.O. crashed and, you know, the, the very famous moment where Al claps and gives M.O. a thumbs up. That wasn't quite as simple as what it looked like to the naked eye and Al was very good about sharing that. He was great about sharing just the incredible emotions after he won his first Indy 500 in 1992, how it's just so overwhelming. And uh, it just, I just found him so entertaining in that he shared legitimate emotions about what, what he was going through. Uh, and then the, the element that I don't think had ever been described in depth was in 1995, when Team Penske famously failed to qualify with either of their cars. Uh, and that that takes up two chapters in the book. And so it was fascinating that he would share what was a very difficult time for, for him and Emerson Fittipaldi and the whole Penske crew. Again, that was a, a main story from, from 95 that I don't think has been told in that depth uh, ever before.
1: No, I understood a whole lot more about it after reading it. And yeah. the funny thing that I noticed about the book, and I'm just going to throw this, it has to do with the layout of the book, the, the, two, mm-hmm. the two sections where there's these sections of photos Yes. Are, are like right in the middle of the Indy 500 stories, the, the 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 first one is the um you know the the win and then and then the second set of pictures is right in the middle of the non qualifying 95. I don't know if that was by design or not, but it's like you're really engrossed in this. Oh, this is interesting. And then, yeah. oh, oh, pictures, but I, you know, yes. so... yeah, that um, some uh, of
2: yeah. that is is literally the physical layout of the book you have. The the photos are color pages versus it's a different paper for the text. So I must admit I was not aware that those those fell there in those positions. But uh, but yeah, just they, some, uh,
1: I, some I noticed because I'm weird. Interesting I weird stuff. <laughs> oh no, that's all right. Uh, <laughs>
2: now I'm going to have to go back and think. Man, they should have moved those. But, too late now
1: <laughs> well no i guess you it gets you right right back to reading because you okay let me yes. oh nice pictures yeah but let me, let me i mean because i got to see what happens next it it stops you from putting the book down
2: yeah. You well, say, I, yeah i gotta
1: i gotta see what happens next so
2: yes well that that's always the goal <laughs> yeah.
1: so let, let me ask you this because it's not really mm-hmm. expressly stated in the book towards the end uh mm-hmm. do you believe that that al has kind of patched his relations with his children. Uh, He does mention that after Shelly passed in 2018, he went back to Albuquerque to be with his children because they needed him. But, you know, one thing thing I've noticed is um, Al Unser 3, right, who was um, Mm -hmm. when he was running um, the Infinity Pro Series for a short time, I was Mm -hmm. just making my way as a a journalist, but he was always good for an interview. He would always have actually Shelly would set them up. Uh, So, so I, you know, I kind of follow him every now and again. Now, now his life right now is not glamorous. He sells insurance and Mm -hmm. he he goes on a run every morning and he puts that on a Facebook live, him running, which is okay. You know, Mm -hmm. appreciate it. (laughs) (laughs) But um, if anybody posts on his social media, like a picture of uh, like him really young with his dad, Mm -hmm. Hey, Hey Al, is this you? He'll just say yes, and then he won't delete it, but he'll turn commenting off.
0: Yeah, if anybody,
1: yeah, if anybody posts a picture of Alistair Jr. on his timeline, he'll turn the commenting off. Which I, you know, I don't know if he just doesn't want to be reminded or if he wants to keep it private, but I, I'm just wondering if, if that relationship with the children has been patched because it's, it's stated very early in the book um, that, that, and it's 2012 when he's having his, uh, uh, lowest of lows and he says, my children hate me.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, honestly, um, it was an area that I didn't delve into deeply. It's clearly something that, that is very, um, very powerful for, for Al. Um, the impression I get is that his relationships are better with them since Shelly's passing. I think Al has made a big attempt to improve that. Um, But beyond that, I I don't know, Um, you know, I I couldn't tell you the current status of that, but but I know it was something that pained him that he wanted to uh, make an effort to be better about as a father, so.
1: Certainly. I just, I didn't know if he had spoken about it. Cause again, like I said, it's not expressly stated in the book. And I, and I really, ho- I really hope it has because uh, yeah, uh, you know, that uh, sometimes that, that hurt uh, you know, from a family member can, can be really deep, you know, worse than coming from a friend. So I, I really wish Al the best in mending those relationships, particularly since, you know, Shelly's not around anymore and, and they only have each other.
2: yeah absolutely
1: absolutely now 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 richard you've been quiet over there which is my go-to phrase (laughs) (laughs) so richard richard do you have any any questions for 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 jane about uh about the book
3: or anything um come back to me come back to me i've been thinking here and and, uh, yeah come back to me on that one Okay, well, I'm just I'm just looking at over my notes and the one okay, the the
1: one thing I that, that struck me in this book is that uh, uh you know Al seems to be well recovered um mm-hmm. it seems to be but but again, you know, he's had a couple of relapses <laughs> in the past and uh but it, but it really seemed like it's time mean, he's what 60 now?
2: Uh almost, yeah.
1: Pretty, pretty close. If I'm 54, he's 5 years older than me, so he's yeah. Yeah. Um, but the one thing I find interesting is that he's unapologetic about his use of marijuana, mm-hmm. and 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 now, now now I don't smoke marijuana, right? But I have friends that do, and and I don't think that it's a horrible thing. I don't think any less of my friends. It just it's just not my thing. Um, and mm-hmm. now it, it's becoming legal here, there, and everywhere. But he he speaks about. Smoking marijuana as early as the fifth grade, and again, yeah. I mentioned it earlier. he said, "Oh, marijuana never hurt anybody." Um, you know, we know that it's technically a medicine and whatnot, but uh, I just found it interesting that he—it's it, you know—it's the cocaine and the alcohol, but the marijuana is like, oh yeah, and there was that. But, but 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 that's essentially what knocked him out of uh, the, the Penske Drive, yeah, uh, and, and knocked him out of the. Contract with uh, Tony George, which I found that to be highly interesting. You know, Tony George was paying his salary. And then after the fact, he says, Yeah, I was never going to pay that money to begin with.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It's his relationship with Tony is very complex. And uh, it sounds like they have uh, good times and bad times. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, uh, you know, he is very, Quick to admit that this uh, disorder or disease, whatever you want to call it, that he has dealing with substances, it it's it doesn't just go away. It's not like you get a cold and it it goes away. So he admits to to that that it's always going to be somewhat of a challenge, and and at the end of the book, I, I think. Uh, He talks about he really feels that he's on a great track going forward now, that there are things that have changed in his life that have made a huge difference. Uh, But that it's an issue that he will have to deal with the the rest of his life. And um, hopefully he remains getting stronger and better. And I think he's doing very well now. He just got uh, married. Uh, He's working and racing again and helping a lot of younger drivers, which he really loves doing, and, you know, he's able to give back to the sport, so, um, you know, I I don't pretend to have a crystal ball, but um, in the writing of the book, I feel like he has been on a very good track uh, onwards and upwards, and I think the book played a, a part in that as well.
1: Yeah, I think sometimes just getting everything off your chest and out there, yeah, you know, can, can help you move forward. So, uh, and again, yeah. the fact that he's helping younger drivers is wonderful because because he has so much to give. <laughs>
2: you know, yeah, you know, absolutely. He has, he, he has
1: so much knowledge, so much experience. You know, he he was doing some great work uh, with um, with Harding with Colton Herta before. Uh, yeah, he, he had another setback, so it is great to see him involved back in this sport. I mean, it was great yeah. to see him and and Willie T. Ribs driving together in the SVRA. Oh yeah, so yeah. yeah. Now, now, yeah. Richard, R- Richard, I see that you do have a question
3: now. So, yeah, no. <laughs> no, I've got one. I've got one. I've got one. So Jade, a number of the books you've written are on uh drivers that should we say were part of a racing dynasty dynasty whichever one you want to call it Uh, um and 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 with with no disrespect to any of them Ah. they probably haven't been the most successful member of that family in terms of their results and their racing performances in in many instances Mm -hmm. um do you ever get how do they sort of see themselves or do you ever get a sort of a Insight into how they saw themselves into in the like the hierarchy of the family.
2: Yeah, that's a wonderful question because I, I've been I've been really lucky in that I've been able to work with a lot of uh, families or a lot of drivers that are part of a multi generational racing family. Uh, Dale Junior was fascinating in that as a young man he felt immense pressure to live up to his father. Uh, and it, it caused him a lot of, uh, stress mm-hmm. and, and angst as a, as a young man, as he matured, I think that got better. Um, then, uh, prior to Al Jr., I worked with John Andretti, who yeah. is the, the nephew of Mario and John jokes that, uh, for a long time, he thought his first name was other but, Oh, it's the other. <laughs>
1: <Andretti>. <laughs> that is
2: funny. But he clearly speaks only highly of, of his uh, uncle and his cousin, and it, it he had so much pride in that last name. Uh, and his book, he was very much about love and family. Uh, and so he had um, a slightly different angle or a different take than, say, Dale Jr. Now with, with Al Jr., again, uh, that was part of some of the questioning I was gonna have for him. And he dealt with it very quickly. That's early in the book where he did a, uh, an interview with a journalist when he was just getting started in sprint cars and the journalist asked him about, you know, do you feel pressure to live up to your dad, your namesake? And he said, honestly, it had never hit him. He had never thought about that until that moment and that uh, he said, uh, no, he didn't feel that. And his dad gave him these uh, great uh, points of advice that he didn't care what he did as long as he tried his best and that he was happy. And um, I really do get the sense that Al didn't feel pressure to live up to his dad. And he, he makes a joke that if I could be half of my dad, uh, then I would be a very proud man, and he says, "Oh, of course, he's won Indy four times, and I've won it twice. So, <laughs> in that aspect, I'm I'm exactly half the man my dad was. Uh, so, I, I found that very interesting, uh, and it was a, it was a topic that he uh, and I talked about very early in our discussions about the book. So, uh, those are three drivers that I've worked with that each have a slightly different view of their famous last name and what what that meant on them as uh, pressure to live up to that mm-hmm. last name so yeah uh, I, th- I found it fascinating and again that's my the luck of my career that i've been able to work with you know like i say a, a number of families uh that, that have that
3: yeah no yeah. right, interesting so- yeah no
1: go so, sorry <laughs> <laughs> so uh so can we ask you what's next for you jade you got
2: something else on the books um you know uh, to be very honest i i finished the uh the the andretti book which of course with john's passing was incredibly emotional and difficult and very soon after that um It turns out that the Andretti family attorney is also Al Jr.'s attorney. And he reached out to me and he says, Al wants to do a book. Would you agree to do it? And I I couldn't say yes fast enough. But I essentially turned in the Andretti book and began immediately with Al Jr. Um, And so right now I'm, I'm finishing up two plus years of just constant uh, writing and, and I'm very proud of how they both turned out, but I need a little break. I need a little <laughs> breather. Uh, I've got a few ideas sort of percolating in the back of my mind, but, uh, I may, uh, I'm, I'm looking at maybe doing some, uh, some broadcast work behind the scenes, kind of uh, cleanse the palate, I guess, if you will, and, and do some other things uh, for a short time. And then uh, certainly get back to the writing, uh, just kind of waiting for the project to uh, present itself and get back into it. So no, I have nothing working, but that doesn't mean uh, that that's forever.
1: Yeah. Interestingly enough, one of the questions I have here that I hadn't asked yet was, was, you know, John, the John Andretti book, which was so well done by you, the impetus for Al coming to you. And you just answered that mm-hmm. for me. So, uh, yeah. Wonderful. Yeah. Now now, I do, yeah. I do, I do want to ask you this because one of the other, you know, hats you wore for a while was to be a, a PR rep for the road to Indy series. Yeah. Right? And now we've uh we're moving indie lights from the ownership of Anderson Anderson Consulting, to mm-hmm. Penske Entertainment, and I just wonder what are your thoughts on that. Or do you think that's a that, that's 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 a good move, bad move, or?
2: Um, I I I must admit I don't know all the details, but it's it's always a positive when Roger Penske uh, really commits to something. Uh, and it's not like Dan Anderson and the Road to Indie folks. It's not like they're going away. They've actually created a new entry level program. That will lead to the F2000 and then the Pro2000, so they will be very much a part of that the the whole ladder, the road to Indy, Uh, and that's one of the things I'm most proud of in my career. I I can't tell you how I feel so proud to see drivers like uh, like Pato Award or uh, Colton Herta or all these young drivers coming up through the ranks that. I feel like, man, I, I was there in their early days and I, I am. I'm like a proud father with all, all of those drivers that have come through the ranks. It, it's really a great feeling uh, to see them succeed and to see them uh, go to the top and to, to really uh, do a great job. So I'm glad glad you brought that up. It's a point of great pride to me.
1: Oh, yeah. And I mean, this, I think this particular past season, 2021, we we saw a real changing of the guard there when you got guys like, you know, Colton Pato and Alex Palou, who didn't come out of the road to Indy. Um, But you got these young guys fighting at the top um, when, when the older guys are, I don't want to say struggling to keep up, but it's like, uh, you know, IndyCar has been poised for a changing of the guard for a while and, yeah. and, and now we're seeing, and I think it's exciting to see it right, right before our eyes. And uh, uh, you know, guys like uh, Colton and Pato are so exciting to watch, particularly Pato. Oh, yeah. Pato, like I, that guy's got the fastest hands I've seen since yeah. Montoya was young. You know.
2: Yeah, I agree. And when I first came aboard uh, with Mazda, one of the guys that worked with us said immediately, "He says let's let's watch this Pato Award kid." At that time, Pato was fifteen. And had just started in what was then called pro Mazda so I give credit to my buddy for recognizing it early but oh my gosh he is just such a wonderful kid and so pleasurable to to be around and to watch mature uh, yeah I, i'm I'm like a proud older brother or proud parent uh, when I see uh, see Pato and people like uh, Oliver ask you uh, succeed in what they're doing
1: oh absolutely yeah so. All right. So we got a, a few minutes left. Um,
2: now Jay, did you get a chance to watch the Formula one race? I certainly did. I was on the edge of my couch. Uh, yeah. So it's, uh, yeah. it's getting to the point where you gotta, you better have your popcorn popped early in the morning. Cause there's going to be drama from start to finish. So, um, I, you know, I, I think it's brilliant to see what a season, uh, how great it is and how that has energized people, uh, you know, here in the U S they say that, you know, the Netflix show has a huge impact, which I agree with, but the fact that this season has just been amazing start to finish, I think has really kicked it into, you know, sort of hyperdrive or whatever you want to want to call it. Uh, I, I couldn't be more thrilled with how, how the season has been and, yeah. As a fan, I'm eating it up uh, day in and day out. That's for sure.
1: <laughs> all right. So now Richard, I'm going to turn it over to you to give us uh, your report from the race before we sign off tonight. So, uh, it's all, it's all you, you got about a uh, couple of minutes.
3: Wow. Where do we start? What a, uh, what, what a race we had this weekend. Um, you know, Brazil, as we've always sort of pointed out, it's these old style tracks, these little classic tracks that tend to produce the better races and, uh, we certainly saw that again this weekend. Um uh, going into the weekend, the big news I think was that um Lewis Hamilton was going to take a uh, engine penalty going to the race. So wherever he finished the sprint qualifying race on Saturday would be where he would he would start five places back from there. Um they were with this new engine immensely fast in Hamilton's car, you know, three to four-tenths of a second up on. Um, Verstappen on a pretty regular basis in every session, uh, including the qualifying session on the Friday afternoon, which gave uh, Hamilton pole going into uh, the sprint race for for Saturday afternoon. But that's when the whole weekend took a little bit of a turn for the worst from Mercedes standpoint. Uh, Hamilton's car failed its post-race inspection due to the DRS flap. Uh, on the rear wing opening too much and uh, being outside of regulations and uh, that's a pretty clear-cut penalty um, there's not much you can do about that I, I think Mercedes tried to uh, question damage to the rear wing and uh, what, what didn't really help the situation was that um, Max Verstappen decided to uh, in Park Fermi which is a big no-no grab hold of the rear wing of the Mercedes and give it a good old shake to see how much it moved, which um, wasn't the smartest thing to do for Max and that did result in a $50,000 fine or 50,000 euro fine. And uh, yeah, I think Mercedes tried to blame the damage on the rear wing on that, but uh, that obviously wasn't the case. And it resulted in Hamilton starting the sprint qualifying in 20th position rather than the pole, which uh, arguably he deserved to, to start. So we go into the sprint qualifying race on the Saturday afternoon. Of course, you know all eyes are on Hamilton to see how he can fight back from uh, starting twentieth uh, on on the grid there. And in a, in a third of the race distance, so twenty four laps, I think it was, he drove fantastically, managed to get up to um, to P five at the end there, with Bottas winning and, um, and and Max finishing second. So three points for. For, for Valtteri in the championship, there two for uh, t- t- and two for um, uh, Max, and I think uh, Carlos Science picked up the the, the final point from the champ- from the sprint race format there. So going into the ra- race proper, if you like, Valtteri was on pole um, with uh, with Verstappen in second, and, and Hamilton got demoted down to tenth. And every you know where can where can Hamilton finish after starting in tenth? And uh, good grief, I mean. It, People question Hamilton's overtaking abilities in the past. And, um, you know, I've been critical of him at times, but good grief, that was a phenomenal drive. Um, You know, on a challenging circuit, an old school circuit, he executed a flawless race, Um, as did Max. I I, I don't think you can criticise Max. You know, he fundamentally, he wasn't fast enough. And that was purely down to the new engine that Mercedes have in, in the back of the car. Um, the, the differential between a new engine and an old engine for Mercedes is far higher than uh, for Red Bull. Red Bull would only change an engine from a reliability standpoint. Mercedes are in a position where they can change their engine from a, a performance standpoint. Uh, and maybe this is something the FIA need to look at into the future, you know, because they could be in a position where these new engines are worth, as we saw in Brazil, three to four tenths of a second the lap, which. Yeah, I was like going to say that.
1: You just slap a new engine every week. Take- yeah. Take, take a five-place five penalty. Five yeah. penalty and 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 blow everybody else off a of track.
3: Yeah, so they may have to be a little bit careful with that. Now, thankfully, we don't have any circuits between now and the end of the season that I would consider have the same overtaking opportunities as um, Interlagos. Although Abu Dhabi may Abu Dhabi, they've uh, they have changed a couple of the corners there. First one leading onto the first back straight, and the second one exiting the second back straight. So maybe it could be the move to do for Mercedes to give them a more powerful engine. Um, you know who knows. So that's going to create a, an interesting dynamic going into the uh, final few races of the season. There, but um, you know, and I've you know, you guys here, we we've talked about this um, you know number of times this season. This twenty twenty one is going to go down in the annals of Formula One as a classic season. You have two. I'm not going to say the greatest driver, generational drivers, two greatest drivers of their current generation at the limit, pushing each other week in, week out to make each other better. And we're just sat here on our sofa every weekend, loving every minute of it. The level that these two guys are driving at is phenomenal. And we are truly privileged to be able to watch it. Um, and we you know, even saw a little bit of controversy with, you know, a little bit of um, Max and Lewis getting the elbows out there. Um, you know, Lewis tried to get back past Max with probably about what, 20 laps to go and max sort of ran wide and pushed lewis off at uh, into turn four and the stewards said there was nothing wrong with it and then you know lewis did eventually get past him um, and, and lewis actually in the post-race conferences will be yeah, i probably do exactly the same thing you know it was hard clean racing you know they didn't hit touch a bit of a gray area probably but um one of the things that I, I, I would take out of it, and I've seen a lot of this, the content on social media and the like about um, comparing what Max did to Lewis as to what Lewis did to Max at Silverstone. And I think the big difference here is that what Max did to Lewis was on the exit of the corner, uh, where the, the car dynamics are a lot different to trying to get into the apex of the corner, as you saw at Silverson at Cops, where Hamilton dived at the inside, missed the apex, and you know, Valtteri. Oh, I mean, sorry, um, Max was just turning in on him, and we we discussed that one at the time. But this one, you know, Max had to defend. You know, Max isn't just going to sit there to his World Championship rival and go, yeah, after you, through you go there. You know, enjoy the rest of your race. Um, he was going to, you know, take the inside line. And break late. Uh, it's naturally he's going to run wide. And Lewis was, you know, level with him. And, yeah, they both ran wide. But it wasn't like Max forced Lewis off the corner at the apex of the corner. This was on the exit. And I think, personally, I think there's a lot more leeway for, for having that sort of manoeuvre where you you push your elbows out on an exit to a corner as the uh, compared to the apex of the corner. The apex of the corner, that's when... Things can go really badly wrong, as we saw in Silverstone. Um, here, on an exit of the corner, I think you can, you know, you're on the apex, you know what the other guy's going to do. You, you know, Lewis knew that Max was going to run wide and, you know, took evasive, took avoiding action. They didn't touch. They didn't really come close to touching. It was just too, you know, it's just good semi-clean racing between two fantastic drivers. So, uh, yeah, I didn't have too much of a problem with them not being a penalty there. Um, because of the you know, as I say, where it happened throughout the, you know, throughout the corner there in particular, and there's plenty of runoff area at the exit. You know, they knew that, and um, yeah, you know, I I didn't have too much of an issue with that. I don't know what uh, I don't know what you guys thought so on that move.
4: Oh, I thought I thought it was fine. I mean, you got you got all that runoff area. Yeah, I mean, ahead. the yeah. best way uh, to all of this would have been is if you added grass and gravel, but we're not in that area uh, anymore. No, we're not. All right, so.
1: So we've got, week, we've got a week off and then we've got a swing through the middle East. We've got Qatar,
3: uh, Saudi, Saudi Arabia, Arabia.
1: and then Abu Dhabi. And, yep. and then we're done. So um, we're done. you guys want to, you want to pick a winner for Qatar? I'll start with Who you. Jade. I'll start with <laughs> you. Jade.
2: Boy. Um, I tell you the, the way that Mercedes was, uh, was running and the way Lewis drove, uh, Boy, how can you choose against him? I, as a fan, I'm kind of leaning Max, but Lewis was just magnificent tonight. It seems that it, nothing will stop him at the moment.
1: All right, now, uh, Louise, who do you like?
4: I like. his Stoner's and, uh, chance. To, oh wait, wait. This is one see, uh, Qatar. Uh, uh, yeah. Anyway, don't, uh, don't
1: don't don't pick Pierre Gasly again.
0: <laughs> so
4: he's still he, he finishes the points, though, but... All yeah, right, he did, I'll yeah. A, I'll give him that, but I am I probably would have been better off with Carlos Sainz, but no. Let's go with Bottas here.
1: Okay, now, Richard, that leaves you Max.
3: Pretty much, yeah. I, mean, I guess I'll take him if I have to. Uh, okay, so that leaves me who?
1: <laughs> you Perez. Have Paris,
4: you have I'll Sainz. Get, get
1: Perez, yeah, I don't know. So I'll, I'll take Perez, and we'll see how that works out, so... All right, so we are just about up at the end of our hour, but before we before we go, Jade, I want to thank you very much, and I want to give you uh, two minutes to plug yourself on social media. Tell us where <laughs> we can find you, where we can buy your books, um, and uh, you know where we can just keep up with you.
2: Well, thank you. I appreciate you guys having me on. Uh, social media wise, I'm most active on Twitter. Uh, that's at Jade Gers. Uh, you can find me there. Uh, my books are, are sold anywhere books are, uh, are sold. So, uh, you know, take all you can eat. Uh, we'll make more. And uh, if you'd like to order it direct from the publisher, Octane Press is the publisher. Uh, I think they've got some specials coming up. You may be able to save a few books. Uh, I don't have the specifics right here, but uh, that's uh, a, another option if you'd like to order it online.
1: Yeah, I, I did see they, they've they got like a, a bundle or two where you can buy like your book along with um, John Oriovitz's book, the Indie Split. You, you could buy uh, the Alex Jr. and the Indie Split book for like a, a nice little package deal for two of them, which make a great mm-hmm. Christmas gift, great Christmas gift for that race lover on your Christmas list. And if you're listening to this show, the race lover is you. So buy yourself a Christmas gift. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so uh but we are at of time. So I want to thank uh, I want to thank you Jade so much for coming on. You are always a wonderful guest and uh I can't wait to uh to see what you have next after you take your little breather. And uh, we'll get you back on again. I want to thank you Louise and Richard. You guys are always wonderful. I want to thank the Hoobazoo Radio Network, Spreaker, iHeartRadio, iTunes, Google Podcasts and YouTube. All those people that carry us. But most of all, I want to thank you folks that listen to us every week. But until next week, good night. WHOOPZOO, that's the your website. We your website.
4: We
0: your website. We your website.